Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Joe Gottman, our Executive Director, talks with Kathy Fallon-Lambert, who is Senior Advisor with the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment and co-founder of the Science Policy Exchange at the Harvard School of Public Health. Kathy and Joe talk about Kathy's work, along with a team of more than a dozen scientists, on recent studies highlighting the potential public health impacts of two Trump EPA proposals. One proposal is to withdraw the so-called appropriate and necessary foundation of the mercury and air toxic standards, and the other is to replace the clean power plan with the affordable clean energy rule. You can find a full list of the study's authors in the links on our blog post that accompanies this podcast, and a lot of information about both proposals on our regulatory rollback tracker at our website. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Kathy. Uh, thank you very much for coming to uh, talk to us for our Clean Law podcast. You and I have had the pleasure of talking over the phone and exchanging emails for the last year or so. So it's great to finally finally meet you uh, in person. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. And it's really amazing how in the last year, uh, you've been part of not one, but two different efforts to provide the public uh, and your colleagues in the science community with uh, up-to-date information about the uh, air quality public health and environmental impacts of not one, but two different regulatory developments being being created by uh, the EPA under its, under its current political leadership. Um, the first involves uh, a proposal that was issued at the very end of 2018 to roll back a key component of the mercury and air toxic standards and the other, of course, is the proposal last summer to uh, replace the clean power plan, what the EPA is calling the affordable clean clean energy rule. And what would be great is if we could actually talk about the two pieces, one on mercury and the other on the impact of the of the ACE proposal uh, on air quality and, and public health. Let's start with the piece you did on you and your colleagues did on mercury first. As you know, in December of 2011, Lisa Jackson, then the administrator of the EPA, signed the mercury and air toxic standards. Uh, and as part of the package of that rulemaking, uh, the agency, uh, as it always does, put together a regulatory impact analysis, which, among many other things, described uh, the state of the science in terms of the impact of mercury on, on the environment and public health and calculated in terms of dollars um, the benefits of mercury and other reductions in, in hazardous air pollutants. I think for most people, for people like me who worked on uh, that, that rule at the time, and I think most of the public that was following the mercury and air toxic standards, uh, the assumption was that the scientific community knew a heck of a lot about the impact of mercury um, and uh, probably uh, correctly assumed that what the agency put out in 2011 about mercury, reflecting the state of scientific understanding, uh, represented state-of-the-art understanding at the time. And I think would be surprised to know that 
in the seven or eight years since the mercury and air toxics standards were issued, uh, we've generated or accumulated even more learning about the impact of mercury. And your paper, your, your colleague's paper, really reflects how much progress has been made uh, in the last seven or eight years. And that's what we'd love to hear about. So let me turn, turn it over to you to walk us through the, the most recent, recent work that you were part of putting together and uh, if it makes sense to describe some of the underlying studies. Sure. Well, thanks, Joe. And it's great to have a chance to talk about this recent work. Um, the context for all of this is that we think that the most important thing is to have the best available science in foreign policy. Sometimes that means looking at the policy to see if it includes the most recent research. And sometimes it means looking at the science to see if we are adequately addressing policy-relevant questions. In the context of MATS, in this most recent action by EPA, uh, it's clear, it was clear to us in looking at that proposal um, that it was based on 2011 science and that a lot has been learned since then that has not been integrated into EPA's proposal. Um, importantly, the impacts of mercury are even greater than what was understood at the time, and then therefore the benefits of reducing mercury from power plants is even higher than was estimated um, in 2011 and is as being applied today. I'm going to I'm going to uh, interrupt just to sort of highlight why what you just said is so poignant because. What the agency did in December was propose something that is specifically focused on the question of how much benefit accrues to the public from reducing mercury emissions from power plants. One of the tasks that the EPA was given by Congress under the Clean Air Act was to make an explicit finding as to whether or not it was, quote, appropriate and necessary, close quote, uh, to reduce mercury and other hazardous air pollutant emissions from power plants. And going all the way back to, I think, 2000, the agency had, after undertaking studies of the subject, determined that it was appropriate and necessary uh, to regulate mercury and other air toxics from power plants. Uh, there was a lot of history since 2000. And in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that part of the agency's task in making this appropriate necessary finding was expressly to compare costs and benefits. So it really matters how well we understand what those benefits are in public health terms, environmental terms, and in the translation of those terms into, into dollars and cents. So what you described as uh, the intersection between um, science and policy is exactly what the agency's proposal in December was focused on. Right. It would seem that if EPA is going to meet their obligation under the court's decision in 2015, this most recent science needs to be taken into account because it does 
have a significant effect on the dollars attributed to the benefits from reducing, in this case, just mercury alone, but obviously there are other pollutants involved as well. But going just to the point of mercury, um, since 2010, 2011, quite a lot has been learned that was not reflected in that RIA. One of the biggest items is that how are people exposed to mercury? And, and the RIA of 2011 assumes that recreationally caught freshwater fish is the exposure pathway that's relevant for this cost-benefit analysis. Well, it turns out that about 80% of the mercury intake of U.S. consumers comes from marine fish, not freshwater fish. So by not including that exposure pathway, that cost-benefit analysis leaves out a very large portion of the American public when considering what the benefits would be of reducing mercury. That alone is a very, very substantial gap in the 2011 RIA that's being used in this current proposal by the EPA. That's... uh both interesting and and obviously quite troubling. What happened in terms of, you know, not from the perspective of the EPA or 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 lawyers, but from the perspective of the from from the perspective of scientists, what happened between two thousand eleven and and two thousand say eighteen that led to this conclusion or even discovery um, of the of the pathways of human exposure to mercury. You know, how did, how did the focus move from uh, freshwater fish to, to, marine, to marine fish? Sure. Some of it was just based on fundamental understanding of mercury and ecosystems and the fact that it bioaccumulates not just in lakes and rivers, but also in marine systems and to a very um, large extent. And then also surveying people about their fish consumption habits and patterns to better understand where people are getting their fish, what kind of fish people are eating, and how much mercury uh, is in those fish. And that just takes time to develop that body of research. It was certainly underway um, in the in the early 2000s, but really found its way into the literature after that 2010-2011 timeframe. So generating that data, reporting that data, publishing that information uh, took time and really came about in response to the question of where are people getting their fish? You know, how are people being exposed to mercury? And an understanding that that's important to the policy conversation. So some of it's just understanding the biogeochemistry of mercury and where people get their fish. So what 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 I'm hearing is that if the EPA were um, starting from scratch in weighing the costs and the benefits, and particularly in characterizing and calculating the benefits of mercury reduction, now the world would look very different from the way it looked, you know, eight or or, or ten years ago. And uh, having having worked on the mercury and air toxic standards, having been in in the agency. When the rule was being developed, um, I can remember two or three briefings from uh, working scientists presenting what they 
characterized at the time as up-to-date research. And the focus was very much on fresh water um, and on fresh and, you know, fresh water, if you will, ecosystems and, and various impacts there. Uh, and hearing a lot of very compelling elaboration on that. And it sounds like it, it took some real vision on the part of, of researchers in this area to expand the frame and look at, look at marine fishes as well. Um, but what I'm also hearing is that uh, the stakes in terms of public health are much higher now, uh, even higher now than they were when the agency first analyzed, analyzed this. Right. And an, another piece of this is that it turns out a lot has been learned about the source of that mercury. And the initial focus on freshwater systems came in part from the belief at the time that mercury from U.S. power plants, if it was to have an effect, it would be probably in lakes and rivers. But that understanding has evolved. It was once on thought that most of the emissions from power plants would be globally distributed and that a small amount would deposit in the U.S. and make its way into fresh waters and fish. And the belief that mercury is a global pollutant would mean that most of the emissions are just dispersed globally and the local effects are probably um, relatively small. Well, that understanding has changed quite substantially so that the portion of the mercury that ends up in fish and fresh waters and marine waters that comes from U.S. sources is actually much higher than was understood maybe 10 years ago when that first RIA was coming together. And that stems from this um estimate at the time that much of the mercury being emitted from power plants was in this form called elemental mercury. And elemental mercury would have a very long residence time and would travel far from the source. The mercury comes in many species. Another form of mercury is known as oxidized mercury, and that tends to deposit much closer to the source. And if you can stick with me on mm -hmm. all the science details here, the reason that's important is that if a lot more of the mercury coming out from smokestacks is in this form that deposits locally, then the contribution of U.S. power plants to mercury in the fish we eat is higher than was thought maybe 10 years ago. And new research confirms the fact that that is it is the case that more mercury is in the form that deposits locally and so the estimates of the contribution of us sources to mercury in the fish we eat were low and if we were to use current science we would see that the power plants have much stronger contribution to the mercury in the fish we eat than was estimated at the time Therefore, the benefits of reducing those emissions is much higher than estimated. If you were to read, if a person were to read the December 2018 proposal in which the agency purported to report the benefits of reducing mercury from power plants and then compare those benefits with the costs, would a reader of the proposal be made aware of any of what you just said? 
No, you wouldn't find this more current science referenced in the recent EPA decision. Right. So, so d- d- despite the fact that the purpose of the December package was to propose an analysis, provide the public with relevant information so that the public could submit comments, um, what I'm hearing you say is that none of None of none of this information about um, uh, oxidized mercury, the local impacts, or what we talked about before, the marine fish pathways, uh, would be presented to the public, would be made available to the public in any way by the EPA's uh, proposal. Not in that proposal. Okay, that that's correct. Right. So, uh, so I mean, it sort of feels like if you contrast what was in the proposal and what you just described as what the scientific community is seeing and understanding about about the impact of mercury emissions, it, it's almost as if what the agency has did is put out sort of a stage set for uh, a public public discussion, public examination of these issues. But there's nothing behind it because the state of the art science of the last seven or eight years is completely missing. Right. To the extent that EPA relied on that 2011 impact assessment, it's quite out of date. And there's there's even more to that, which is that it also, that 2011 RIA focuses on neurocognitive deficits alone. Mm-hmm. So mercury is a neurotoxin. Um, it passes the blood-brain barrier. So it, we know that it has neurological effects at certain concentrations, but those are not the only effects. The, um, the RIA looks at IQ decrement, so reduction in IQ in children who are highly exposed from maternal uh, consumption of fish, presumably, is the, the biggest input. But since then, the cardiovascular effects of mercury have become quite well understood. So the risk of non-fatal heart attacks and fatal heart attacks is well described in the scientific literature now. Most scientists would say those should be included in a cost-benefit analysis. In addition, when looking at IQ, uh, they focused only on lost earnings and the economics of reduced IQ go well beyond that. So if you were to look at just IQ, even that, the numbers would probably be higher today than in 2011, considering effects on the healthcare industry, um, effects on lost earnings for sure, but also effects, effects in the insurance agency. So there's a whole cascade of health effects of mercury that are also missing from EPA's current proposal. So if I understand correctly, it's probably worth doing, at least at this moment, um, either an interim or maybe a final recap of what's missing, what basically we didn't know or didn't know well enough in 2011 to include in that year's calculation of the benefits of reducing mercury and what continues to be completely opaque in the, in the December 2018 proposal, uh, by my count, there are four, four buckets. One is the importance of marine fish as a pathway to exposure. Uh, two is the importance of looking at oxidized mercury, not just elemental mercury, 
and uh, as a result, it's, it's local impacts. The third, it sounds like, is the sort of cardiovascular impact of mercury exposure um, that was, let's say, invisible in the 2011 impact analysis and remains invisible in the 2018 analysis. Uh, and then it sounds like there was a pretty significant, not to say gross, undercharacterization or underrepresentation of the economic, not to mention human um, impacts of, of the IQ damage that's done by, by mercury exposure. So these are four major four major, if you will, missing pillars of what would be a truly up-to-date, informative of the public um, impact analysis. And yet the agency is proposing uh, or purporting to be able to perform a comparison of costs and benefits, but doing so without these four major pillars of information. So, okay, so we've got four. Is, are there, do you have other, uh, you know, other, other uh, missing links uh, to add to that list? Uh, those are the, those it's, are the, it's outrageous enough as it is, Kathy. So, yeah. <laughs> well, those are the major missing links. There's definitely emerging research on um, endocrine disrupting effects of mercury, um, links to diabetes, other health effects that um, a more up-to-date analysis might also look at. But you hit the four buckets for sure, Joe. And, and when considering what this might all add up to, I, I think a true analysis needs to be done to nail that number down. But in our paper, we looked at the literature and we see that a full accounting of the IQ effects uh, in the U.S. is has a monetized value of about $4.8 billion. That's mercury exposure from all sources with that would have IQ effects. IQ, specifically but IQ effects. I, IQ effects alone. And when we compare that one impact uh, and that dollar amount of $4.8 billion to the value of reducing mercury via mats of 4 to $6 million, perhaps up to 10 million, depending on how you read the RIA, you see that we have this enormous gap between what the research would suggest is the benefit of reducing mercury in monetized terms and what is in the 2011 RIA upon which EPA appears to be depending. So essentially what I heard correctly is the RIA calculates in millions with an M and single-digit millions, whereas looking at the IQ impacts alone and translating them into a monetary value uh, is dealing with billions with a B. Uh, and we're just talking about IQ impacts. That's just one of the buckets. So uh, I do have to commend both of us on how calm we're remaining when contrasting the information you're sharing with what the EPA and last year deigned to share with the public in a proposal that claimed to be comparing the benefits and the costs of uh, reducing mercury emissions from uh, power plants. I, I'm aware, and as I'm sure you are as well, that the agency provided a uh, what it thought was a compelling or decisive legal justification for performing the cost and benefit comparison using 
2011 information. Um, but if you if you remember that the proposal, all proposals are intended to be a pathway for informing the public, you know, essentially what the agency is doing is fashioning a legal justification for uh, hiding a lot of information that the public needs to, the public would certainly benefit from having. We see our job as making that research as available um, to as many people as possible. And that's why we produced the um, the brief that we did to compile that information, make sure it's in people's hands. And um, our hope, of course, is that it makes its way into the final decision-making process. And in terms of the cost-benefit analysis itself, another issue that we have to contend with is that it has long been a pretty imperfect tool when it comes to dealing with a whole host of benefits of reducing emissions that are unquantified still. So we are often very good at, at estimating costs and complete costs, and usually they are they tend to be overestimated, but we almost always underestimate benefits. And if you look at the regulatory impact assessments that EPA has done over the years across all administrations, there's usually at the very back a large list of unquantified benefits. And in this case for mercury, those are quite large. They're all of the wildlife effects, for example, are completely unquantified. And in for wildlife, there, there are many that are obligate fish eaters. They have no choice other than to eat fish, so they, there's no option to change your diet. And the effects on loons, as just one example, or um, bald eagles or osprey fish-eating birds who produce fewer young as a result of elevated mercury in their blood, that is just one of many unquantified benefits of reducing mercury. And so the ledger is often incomplete to begin with when, on the benefit side when cost-benefit analyses are done. And that's understood. It's the, it's, the knowledge is evolving. It's a bit of an imperfect um, tool. But it's a fifth major category of damage that mercury in the environment does and that's, uh, you know, un- barely acknowledged, let alone counted in, in the what the agency proposed as a as a comparison of cost and benefits. It's an area in in need of additional research and I think when we do the when that research is done the numbers will only go up, right? We wouldn't expect that as you add more of these the number would go down. And so you can see that updating the science periodically at each decision point is so important to generating a rational, logical outcome that should be based on costs and benefits. And on the benefits side, uh, it's almost always incomplete. So we should at least be accounting for what we do know. Well, it's probably time to go to the other uh, major piece of work that you were part of creating um, in the last year. At, at the interface between public policy, environmental policy, and and science. Uh, that's a paper that you co-authored looking at what would or will happen if the affordable clean energy proposal is finalized, the requirements in that proposal that coal-fired power plants uh, invest in 
in operational upgrades um, and how that would affect uh, air pollution in various parts of the country as compared to or contrasted to what would happen if the ACE rule were not put in place at all. So let's, let's, let's hear about that. Sure. So this work starts actually back in 2015 when we published a paper in the journal Nature Climate Change that looked at three different types of carbon standards. This was before any actual policies had been introduced. But we were curious, what would be the air quality changes if a carbon standard were constructed as a flexible standard that allowed a systems approach with trading and renewables and energy efficiency included in the mix of how a standard might be met, compared with a more source-specific approach that's just focused on individual power plants and improving the heat rate or efficiency, operating efficiency of the plant, and compared to a third approach, which would be a carbon tax approach, which would implement any carbon reduction measures that cost up to $50 per metric ton. And we were purely interested in the question of what does that mean for air quality apart from carbon dioxide emissions and what would be the health implications of any changes in air quality improvements or uh, degradation. So that work was published. It it sounds like you know Dallas Bertram. Right. So that was a team. All of this work that we've described has been a team effort. And That's another hallmark of the work that we do in order to sort of ask and answer these sorts of questions requires having air quality experts, energy sector modelers, epidemiologists, economists all working together. And so you're right. Dallas was a member of the team that produced that paper together with Charlie Driscoll, John Levy and Jonathan Bunicor. So fast forward uh, to the present, and as it turns out, when the affordable clean energy rule was proposed, it represented just that kind of shift from a systems um, approach where the full power sector and different opportunities for reducing CO2 were taken into account with the clean power plan to a more source-specific approach that would focus on improving the heat rate of power plants. When that rule was proposed, EPA produced um, an RIA that included in it information on emissions for um, the affordable clean energy rule compared to taking no action, no policy, and compared to the clean power plant. So our most recent analysis, which was published in Environmental Research Letters, simply takes EPA's own emissions results from its modeling and disaggregates it to look at the consequences state by state. So it it sounds like the the significant uh, revelatory here was was the state by state breakdown um, of of the air quality impact of, of implementing ACEs as compared to uh, no policy or no rule at all. Is that right? That's correct. And and it turns out that the information we used to do that 
did come directly from EPA's modeling, but had not been summarized in that way. So our contribution was to break it down further than what had been reported in the RIA and to then evaluate what was responsible for causing the increased in emissions where and when it occurred. So would it, uh, would it be helpful to get the top level sure. sort of Absolutely. findings from that? Yeah. So the the basic finding from that work that built on our previous work is that when you take a heat rate approach and just look at the individual power plants um, and improve the heat rate of an individual power plant, um, it, it's possible that it will operate more. So money has been invested to improve the operating efficiency of the plant. And now it moves up in the dispatch order and it runs either more frequently or for longer periods of time because it's more economical to do so. By the way, what you just described is sort of the hidden in plain sight purpose, policy purpose of ACE, which doesn't seem to be to make significant reductions in pollution, whether we're talking about CO2 or other pollutants, but to instigate or prompt additional investment in the existing coal fleet. Or at least it sounds like, not to put words in your mouth, it sounds like that's an implication or, or an assumption. Right, right. Um, well, In the analysis you did. So we, we just took EPA's numbers and sort of without, just took them at face value right. without reading into sort of why why they are what they are, but, but rather... At, at face value, that would be the effect. That, the, that is the... If, if you were explicitly doing a reinvestment in the existing coal fleet policy, it sounds like you would see numbers like the numbers you saw. Right. That's certainly what comes out of EPA's analysis. And just to drill down a little bit further on that, this emissions rebound, basically what it does is shift the burdens to the states to take action to prevent that from occurring because it would occur not only um, for CO2 in some instances, but also other criteria pollutants like sulfur dioxide and NOx. You, you snuck a little term about, uh, snuck a little term of art in there, emissions rebound. And that, that's really the, the term that is used for what you described as you add investment to these fleet, to the, to these plants, you increase their efficiency, you increase their operating value in terms of what the dispatch protocol sees, and they run more. Correct. And therefore emit more. Correct, correct. That emissions rebound occurs once you've improved the operating efficiency of the plant, and it makes sense for them to then run more often. And you can get increased emissions of CO2 as well as these pollutants that come along with and SO2 and NOx, and those are the pollutants that can directly affect local air quality. So in addition to undermining the purpose of addressing greenhouse gas emissions, the end result could also be to reduce air, local air quality in the near term. And in some cases, that leaves it up to states then. States have the burden of figuring out how to deal with that and perhaps proposing their own standards. And however that happens, there is a, a patchwork approach as a result with a pretty uncertain outcome. And for some states where we saw the potential for emissions rebound, they have state goals that they're trying to meet. And for six states where emissions rebound occurs, they're also trying to 
meet reduction targets for greenhouse gas emissions. So it's made that meeting those targets possibly even harder. So maybe just a step back a little bit um, and to unpack the study, it, it's it's maybe useful to know that you can look at changes in emissions at the national scale, at the state scale, and at the individual plant level. And you can consider them in comparison to what would happen under no policy at all or what would happen under the clean power plan. And when we looked at comparing emissions to no policy at all, that's where we found that by 2030, about 18 states would have an increase in carbon dioxide emissions compared to no policy. And that's the target pollutant. In addition, 20 states would potentially see an increase in either sulfur dioxide or NOx because of this emissions rebound compared to no policy. You looked at the you looked at uh, looked at states and the effect on on individual states. Just did you either look at or could you give us now a kind of uh, estimate of what's the population that's affected here? So the question of which states see this emissions rebound is an interesting one. And Texas is one that stands out, for example. And because there's a lot of production there to begin with, you might expect to see this rebound effect. And in fact, for carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, the emissions increase quite substantially. And so we're talking about a large state, we're talking about a state that is in, a, in and of itself is, is quite populous. And we know from other work that the EPA has done going back at, at least a decade, uh, emissions from Texas coal-fired power plants have a significant impact on transport, um, that the emissions in Texas uh, don't just affect the health of people living in Texas, but they affect air quality, at least across the southeast quadrant, um, if not beyond. For sure, we see these increases in the southeast and in the mid-Atlantic region where there is higher coal production and in fairly populous regions. And in part, that's why you see in EPA's own RIA a projected increase in premature deaths of approximately 1,000 additional premature deaths. And that reflects this emissions rebound in SO2 leading to degradation of air quality. Right. You know, I, I want to dwell on that as a, a, a little bit because EPA, as your answer just indicated, has long since understood, in fact, the, the air quality policy community um, uh, from both a, a policy side and a, a technical side has long since understood that power plants in particular, not alone, but in particular, contribute significantly to Long, the long-range transport over multi-state areas of air pollution or, or air pollution precursors. So let's be clear that even though your analysis broke the impacts down on a state-by-state basis, um, we're talking about states like Texas that also have a very big footprint or a very big fingerprint on multi-state air quality, not just, not just local air quality. 
Right. I think it's fair to say that when it comes to air pollution, like what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. And that's true probably for for any state. And that's why we have things like the Clean Air Act that looks at these as cross-state, cross-boundary issues. I was going to use that line, but it sounds so much better coming from you, Kathy. <laughs> uh, I think, it, you know, in, in the case of air quality, we need to be concerned with what's happening at a state basis um, for that state and for downwind states as well. So it, it's, not, it, it's not just rhetoric to say that there's real perversity, if you will, in, in ACE, in the, in the affordable clean energy proposal, uh, in terms of, in terms of something that's, that's, that's being proposed under the Clean Air Act, seems that it will have little, if any, impact on CO2 emissions and will really create not only air quality problems, but, but additional burdens on states who, are at the front lines of protecting their citizens from air quality de- degradation. I think that's fair to say. It, it, it's important, as you point out, to, to remember that the benefits for CO2 emissions nationally are quite modest. Mm-hmm. So this is an approach that would really have very minimal benefits for climate and then also potential negative impacts right. for air quality. I think one of the things that has haunted a lot of environmental policy, and I'm taking a very broad sweep here, is trade-offs. And what you're saying is that this is a, a, a classic and at the same time almost elementary case where the proposal is setting up a trade-off between reductions in one air pollutant, CO2, uh, versus increases in other air pollutants. Um, and what I'm also hearing you say is that there are a number of ways to achieve the benefit, modest or not, of CO2 without imposing those trade-offs. And yet this proposal chooses kind of a, a, a close to worst case scenario. Very, very small benefits traded off against uh, non-trivial uh, air quality degradation. Very well said. And it points to the value of a multi-pollutant approach. I think that's why it's it's so important in both this policy context and another context to look not only at what's happening with the target pollutant, but what are the potential unintentional unintended consequences for other air pollutants. And in this case, um, that jumps right out. The fact that CO2 can be reduced in other ways without having this rebound of co-pollutants is important to understand when making the determination about how to meet the endangerment finding. That comment really I think is important, and it may be something that hasn't been focused on uh, in the last year or so. Let's go back to October of 2017, when the EPA first proposed to repeal the Clean Power Plan. And then the August proposal was the follow-up to that, because that is paired with the repeal now as a replacement. Uh, And a lot of the discussion has been about uh, evaluating ACE in contrast with the CPP. But let's widen the frame a bit, because what you said just now about maintaining a multi-pollutant perspective on rulemaking and policymaking may be the even more important context, even beyond the CO2 question, of evaluating uh, ACE. Because 
going back to the Bush administration with its ill-fated clean air mercury rule, uh, which tried to set up a kind of, if you will, a trading system for mercury, which was found to be illegal under the Clean Air Act, but for other reasons, and which also issued the clean air interstate rule, which evolved into the Obama era's cross-state air pollution rule, the EPA has long since committed itself to a multi-pollutant trade-off eliminating approach that involves flexibility by and large in the term, by and large in the way of setting up multi-state emissions trading programs. The idea being that if you gave power plant operators a lot of options for how to reduce emissions, they and the states in which they operated would find ways, they'd have the latitude to find ways to minimize or eliminate these trade-offs. And so what the what what you're describing is an ACE proposal that not only comes into conflict, if you will, or defies the logic of the Clean Power Plan, but you're talking about a, a, a Clean Air Act proposal that this EPA has put forward that defies 10 or 15 years of what had been some of the most enlightened approaches that the agency had taken through a series of previous rules, again, authored first by the Bush administration and then by by the Obama administration. Um, So as I listen to you, the sin here uh, isn't just measured against um, the CO2 problem that they're not solving, but it's really needs to be understood in terms of, of how backward um, this approach is to dealing with air pollution from power plants. I think I just put a lot of words into your mouth, but certainly that's the lesson I, I draw from taking the results you and your colleagues developed and reported here and putting them against that much broader, uh, if you at this point, historical backdrop. Sure. And if you're, if you're thinking about those same questions from a, a research perspective, from a science perspective, you're thinking about it as a system, right? And if the goal is to be protective of human health and ecosystem health, you must consider the fact that we breathe air that integrates all of these pollutants. We don't get to breathe air that just responds to one policy at a time or reflects one pollutant at a time. Air integrates all of these, and that's what we breathe, and that's what the environment receives. And so when we consider how to analyze a particular policy path or trajectory or outcome, it's logical from our perspective to consider the full range of pollutants as best we're able. When when I think about it from a policy perspective, what seems important to me about that is that speaks to the importance of considering the full range of benefits so that if you don't look at the full range of pollutants, not only are you missing out on estimates of co-benefits, but potential disbenefits. Mm-hmm. And it would be very disconcerting if EPA or anyone started analyzing rules strictly on the basis of one pollutant, because we could completely fail to see the unintentional effects that could have detrimental health or environmental health consequences because of changes 
in other pollutants that come along with the primary pollutant. You know, as I read, as I read your study and as I hear you describe it, I really see kind of like two bottom lines. What the public, public stake is in the ACE rule. One that if finalized in its current form, the uh, citizens of 18 to 20 states will be at risk of immediate degradation in their air quality. And to the extent that at least a handful of those states, again, Texas being a prime example, um, generate emissions that have significant downwind impacts over a much broader geographic and population region, uh, you know, citizens or, or the public on a regional basis will be uh, at risk of being exposed to air quality degradation by direct operation of the ACE proposal. Um, the other bottom line is that EPA has already figured, had already figured out how to design programs and put in place policy tools that mirrored what you described in terms of what research should be looking at and in terms of the fundamental, the foundational insight that public health is determined not by discrete pollutant by pollutant exposures, but by the total loading, if you will. And by using regional programs, emissions trading-based programs, programs that allowed, say, grid-wide flexibility, as reflected by Bush's Clean Air Mercury Rule, Bush's Clean Air Interstate Rule, Obama's Cross-State Air Pollution Rule, and the Clean Power Plan, uh, the policy designers had already solved that problem and the authors of ACE have unsolved the problem. When looking at EPA's own emissions data, that would seem to be the case. When comparing ACE to the Clean Power Plan, which they did do in the RIA, CO2 emissions, of course, would be higher. Sulfur dioxide emissions would be higher, and nitrogen oxide emissions would be higher from 3 to 6% nationwide by 2030. And so just on the basis of those numbers alone, we see that emissions going up compared to the clean power plan and also going up compared to no policy when it comes to SO2 and NOx for a number of states. And so this potential for a rebound effect, I think, is a fundamental aspect of understanding how different policy levers affect air quality and, and people and people's health. 